Knowledge is power. Welcome to the Junkyard Love Podcast, ladies and gentlemen. I'm here with Zach Beach. Welcome, Zach. Thanks, Jacob. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, happy to have you on, man. You uh, you messaged me. Um, you, you reached out to me on Instagram, and I was like, actually, yeah, let's let's squeeze you in. I, I know <laughs> I had mentioned uh, I have my backlog of of pod match people, but uh, it, it, I immediately was like, cool, this is going to be a great conversation, right up my alley. Um, it seems like you are interested in a lot of the things that I'm interested in. Um, mm-hmm. You excel in, in all these different areas, so. Let's kind of give people who have never heard of you, they don't know anything about you, what what do you do? What do I do? Um, I just want to thank you again for having me, and I appreciate your listeners uh, listening to me because I am committed to one thing, and that is love. And I want everyone at the end of the show to know that they deserve all the love that their heart can have and handle, and that you are loved and you belong and you're beautiful and perfect just the way that you are. And there's nothing you need to do, change or improve about yourself uh, to be worthy of love. And even at the end of the day, when we make mistakes or things don't go the way that we want, you are still worthy and belonging, worthy of love and belonging. So many years ago, I decided to devote myself to love. And I do think of my work in the world as being on the level of the body, the heart and the mind. So on the level of the body, my work involves yoga, getting people in touch with their own bodies, partner yoga and time massage, getting bodies to connect with other bodies. On the level of the heart, I love poetry, the language of the heart and the language of love. And on the level of the mind, I lecture, write and workshops and do coaching as well. Love coaching, helping people strengthen their own loving relationships. And that to me is the power of intention is it's open-ended and there's a million ways to live from whatever intention you set for your own life, whether it's peace or compassion or love. And it's taken me to really wonderful places in the world. And I also encourage your listeners to live from their own intention, to think about what really matters to them most in life, to think about why they are here on this planet and to make sure they're living in line with those inner values. Well, so obviously this is a very uh, natural spot for you to fill. Um, it seems like it goes hand in hand with your personality and what you're all about. How did you how did you find this intention? You know, for someone who's not really thought consciously, what what do you mean intention? You know, you just pick something mm-hmm. and you aim at it, and that's what you do. Like, how did you stumble upon this for yourself? Um, that would be lovely if it was easy. Right. Um, I do kind of think of my path as that quote that you might know that a fool. A fool who persists in his folly eventually becomes wise. And I'm I'm still not even to the wise part yet. I'm kind of halfway in between. (laughs) Um, But I would say my path originally did not begin with love. It began with a search for truth, right? A search for, is there any kind of underlying reality to that which we perceive? And really thinking about, why are we here? Why are humans here? What does it mean to be a good person? Those really fundamental questions that we all ask ourselves. And it's crazy to me because no matter where I went in the world, rather it was a lecture hall at some university or a church or a temple or a synagogue, I heard the same message again and again, wherever I went on this search for truth. 
that no matter the question, <laughs> the answer is love. Mm-hmm. And when I do talk about love, some people are like, oh my God, this hippie like just tells me to love everyone. And I like to remind everyone that this is grounded in science, neuroscience, social psychology, the idea that we all need love did not originate with the Beatles and originated <laughs> with an understanding of how human beings develop. We come into this world extraordinarily dependent on others to take care of ourselves, give us the food, shelter, and care that we need to survive. And that need for connection and belonging continues for the rest of our life, right? And I love all the research that's coming out about how important social connection is for our own mental health and well-being. And some of the research, for example, says that poor social connection is just as bad as smoking a pack of cigarettes a day or being overly obese in terms of health and longevity. So it didn't originate with some pie in the sky hippie ideal, but it's really grounded in how we as human beings are built, how our mind is wired to connect with others. And when you were like, oh, what does it mean to live with intention? Do you just choose it and then you're done with it? That would, again, be lovely. Mm-hmm. But it's iterative, right? So living with intention is a matter of, one, reflecting, like what really matters most to you in this life, and then trying your best to live from that intention, right? So you might wake up in the morning and you say, I'm going to love myself today, And then you go to the mirror and you see a big zit on your forehead and you're like, you are so ugly. And you're like, dang it. (laughs) I lost already. (laughs) I know, exactly. Like I was so close. Um, But that's why it's a practice, right? It is an iterative uh, matter of continually coming back to our intention, whether it's for peace or love or compassion or understanding or forgiveness. And along with that practice, you're constantly making adjustments to your path, constantly figuring out what really works and what doesn't, right? And so sometimes like we think that we're on the right path, we climb, one metaphor is we reach a wall, we get to the top of the ladder, we look over the wall, we're like, wait a second, this was the wrong wall Mm -hmm. (laughs) and then we have to go an entirely different path so just the same for me i thought i was on a path for truth and then truth led me to love and now i'm on a path of love so who knows Mm -hmm. what this one might take me wow beautiful okay so when you first began this journey um i'll just say for me when i kind of started turning turning my my intention inwardly you know kind of asking myself these similar things that you were saying you know um like, like what, what does it mean to, what, what is my intention? What, what is my, what is my focus? Like, what am I, what, what should I be doing? You know, these, mm-hmm. these sort of things that kind of make you question yourself. Like, what am I? What's a human? And, and why does love feel good? And, and whatnot. Did, did you have, um, I don't know, did you have any sort of like breaking moment or any sort of like what you would consider a spiritual awakening of any sorts? Um, I don't know if you use these terminologies, but you know, some people talk about stepping onto the path of enlightenment, that sort of thing. I don't know if you um, stumbled in that direction. Like what, what kind of sparked you to do this sort of thing? Mm. Well, I do think of my path as almost a continuous process of awakening or to put it a different way. I do think of the life path as a series of exercises in awakening or mm. spiritual awakening that are, task as human beings, the reason we were reincarnated in this form, that's just one way of putting it, is simply to awaken, 
and that everything we experience in this life is all grist for the mill. It's all signposts and exercises that we can use to facilitate our own awakening. And I wouldn't say at any point there was like this sudden moment. It has been this continuous process and this continuous deepening. And it's interesting kind of the way you formulated your question because it's like, oh, I've been trying to kind of figure this out or have you been trying to figure this out? Because something that you discover on the path is thinking will not get you there. Is the mind is limited in its abilities and its conceptualizations. And to me, spirituality is almost anything that goes beyond the mind, right? This is what Eckhart Tolle says. Spirituality is anything that goes beyond the continuous movement of thinking, right? Or Mark Epstein says that spirituality is anything that transcends our personality, right? Anything that goes beyond this sense of ego, this sense of a limited self caught up in this body and stuck in an alien universe, right? So it, you can't think yourself there. Although the path of mental discipline and mastery is an important one, but it is a matter of discovering other dimensions to our being other dimensions to being human. And one important dimension, of course, is the heart, is the heart space, which is why I was never a big fan of the term mindfulness, because mm -hmm. when we bring our full body, our full present moment awareness, it, there's no mind left. So I often refer to it as either A, heartfulness, because you're bringing your full heart, or B, tuning into something we already talked about. I think of mindfulness as being re-mindfulness, where you continually remind yourself of your intention of why you are here. But I often also think of mindfulness as simply loving, connected presence at the same time. And again, this is this practice that we continue to do. And in yoga, we do have this kind of basic idea that nirvana and samsara are the same, or the end and the means are the same. And that if you think that you're getting somewhere or that you're trying to attain something, you've already made a mistake. <laughs> Basically, like if you're meditating to attain enlightenment, like you're not meditating because you've already separated yourself from some future oriented goal. And we can come to kind of a understanding that if we are looking for like an unconditioned aspect of our experience, then it's not going to be found anywhere than right here, right now, right? Not anywhere outside of yourself, not anywhere somewhere in the future that you are trying to go towards. Because if you can gain it, guess what? You can lose it. <laughs> and therefore, it's just back to the world of conditions. Yeah, wow. Yeah, it, uh, it, it is interesting. Uh, I feel like my perception, I've always been pretty fascinated with time. It's always just been, um, the, the concept has always just caught my attention. Um, my, uh, my tattoo sleeve actually on my left side is a representation of time as the four seasons. Um, but it's mm. interesting because I feel like when I got it, when I first got into, you know, I never really understood my obsession with time. I knew that I liked it and I knew that it was fascinating. I knew it was really cool to think about and talk about with people. I have, I have, um, you know, friends who study physics and it's, it's really cool to, to talk about time with them. But, uh, the farther I kind of, you know, again, not that we, we will arrive, but the, the, I guess the more I get in tune with my spiritual self, um, the more time, my perception of time is different of like this, 
not, you know, sitting in meditation, not thinking I'm going to arrive or like, okay, if I do the right things then I'm going to like, <laughs> it's going to turn on or whatever, but it's more of just sitting with, uh, of course it is exactly how it is right now. You know, you just, you just become acceptance of, of how it is right now in order for it to kind of propagate the future that you maybe believe in. Um, so, okay. So as far as your, your world in meditation and yoga, when it, let's see, what question do I want to ask? Um, I can touch on a few things that you just said. Yeah, I'll, I'll <laughs> go, go ahead. I'll, I'll ramble on into well, nothing for a while. So thank you <laughs> well, I love because you were like, you know, I often think about time, right? Yeah. And that is part of the fundamental inquiry that we find on the spiritual path, which is the human path, which is the same path that we're all walking just the series of exercises and awakening. And it does tap into like those fundamental questions. Like, why are we here? What is life? Why is there something rather than nothing? And it is a matter of penetrating whether what we experience is true versus just like an artificial reality created by the mind. Right. So then we get into, okay, what is space? What is matter? What is existence? What is consciousness? And what is time is, of course, wrapped into all of that. And part of our path of Viveka, wise discrimination is differentiating between what is part of our real experience and is there any underlying truth to that? And the basic idea is that once we are able to discover that truth, then we do attain a certain level of awakening or insight. So you probably know Vipassana just simply means insight, meaning that if you have insight into the true nature of reality, then you'll awaken. And you absolutely tap into this idea that we don't find it out there, but we find it in here. So there's, there's this quote by Paramahansa Yogananda that I love. And he says that it is not the physicist, but it is the self-realized master that understands the true nature of reality. Mm. And we discover as soon as we look within that we're just a reflection of the cosmos, that this microcosm is a reflection of the macrocosm. and we look within to discover if there is any underlying truth. And of course, as soon as we look in the mind and observe the mind, we realize just the idea of time is a total illusion created by the mind, right? The only thing that ever exists is this present unfolding now. Mm -hmm. It's the mind that creates a future that no longer, that doesn't exist and it creates a past that's already gone. And then you're like, okay, well, if time is an illusion created by the mind, if my body sense mind complex is an illusion created by the mind. What is real? What is, what is true? And that's the path. Mm. Can we expand a little bit on, um, cause I like explaining this. I, I've, I've spoken with people and spoken with friends, um, kind of about, I've used the word, you know, anxiety and depression, you know, so often anxiety is you're, you're thinking you're right here right now, but you're thinking towards into the future, what might happen. Um, or you're depressed. Often we're looking at the past. We're we're upset about something that might have happened. So could you elaborate a little bit more on what you mean by, you know, all, all we have is right now. How, how is when we're thinking about the future? How is that not right now? <laughs> yeah, I've I've also heard that idea. And, you know, if you're angry, I wonder if it was Shinryu Suzuki or one of those Roshi masters. But this basic idea that if you're anxious, you're living in the future. If you're depressed, you're living in the past. And I don't know how many like therapists and psychology would agree with such like a 
a blatant (laughs) reductionist (laughs) statement because there might be some other factors involved. But it is really important to understand how the mind works in order to become free of it, in order for us not to be controlled by the mind, in order for us to realize that what we might be experiencing might be very real, as we say, but it's not true, right? And one of the things the mind does is it's dual in its understanding. It splits the world in its understanding. And one of the things it does is, yes, create a future or create a past and create any sort of abstract concept that we then get tapped into and caught up in and thinking that it is some version of the truth. And there is a matter of turning the mind into a slave, as we say, and not a master and tapping into other ways of being in this world. Right. So there's a quote by, I want to say Thomas Merton, the Christian mystic. And he says that our bodies know that they belong. It's our mind that makes us homeless. Mm-hmm. which taps into this idea that, yeah, if you want to be in your present in this moment, it's really not hard. People think it's like, oh, some mindfulness, some mental trick. If you want to be in this moment, be in your body. Your body is breathing, beating its heart, pumping its blood, feeling, sensing in the right here and the right now. And it's the mind that is going to take you away from being in this continuous unfolding moment. Another phrase that I've heard, and I'm not sure who who said this, but it goes, the mind creates the abyss and it's the heart that crosses it, which Mm. again taps into other dimensions of our being. So first we have our body that is always in this present unfolding moment. And of course we have this heart. Um, So I sometimes think that like, yes, the mind will break the world up into a million pieces and it's the heart that will put it back together. And what I mean by like, yeah, the mind will divide up the world. It kind of catches it in what I call a cognitive net. It separates things, categorizes things. You know, these are this species. This is this far away. This is the, this happened in the past. This happened in the future. In order for us to understand anything, it comes from a level of duality. It comes from a level of separation, which is one way of observing and understanding the universe. But there are, of course, other ways. So, um, You know, there's this metaphor that the Buddha uses. He says, right now there's an arrow in your leg. And you could spend a lot of time conceptualizing, thinking about where the arrow came from and who shot it and what the trajectory and the speed of the arrow was that is now in your leg. Or you could attend to the wound and attend to the suffering. And that's kind of my approach to certain things that the mind does, like potentially generate a sense of anxiety of of the future, depression of the past, as you could think like, okay, like, how is this working? Where did it come from? Was it my childhood trauma, et cetera, et cetera. And that can be very helpful. Or we can just attend to the fact that human beings have a penchant for making themselves miserable, (laughs) for Mm -hmm. making making ourselves suffer. Um, and the mind is the one constantly imagining and wanting things to be different than the way that they are creating a certain level of suffering, imagining a future that could be better or a past that was better. And now things are much worse. And rather than necessarily figure out those dynamics, we can simply attend to this reality that there is some suffering and we can bring our heart to bridge the abyss to, and we can come into our bodies to come back home. 
Yeah, it reminds me, I was thinking of the, I saw this meme that was like a, some sort of spiritual meme that was uh, when I find the person responsible for all of my suffering and it was me <laughs> looking in the mirror or whatever, you know. Um, can, we, can we elaborate a little bit more on um, the difference between like heart and mind or kind of like dropping into your heart center? You know, I, I've done plenty of meditations where it's so subtle, you know, it's so subtle, but it's so beautifully subtle where um, maybe you first sit down and so your mind's, you know, a little bit racy. Um, kind of going through, you're you're trying to concentrate on your breath in this meditation, for example. Um, and then I've I've had the uh, the person uh, guiding the meditation would say, you know, drop into your heart center. They would give you different cues or different ways of kind of like bringing your awareness from either following your breath or your thinking mind or just you know one pointed on something and dropping it into your heart. And um, there's this. It it is very subtle, but if you can kind of drop your attention into your heart it's, it's, uh, it's very difficult to describe, but like you, you do become detached from your thoughts in a way. Um, if you're able to kind of like, um, you know, there's a, I've for the definite or the, uh, the example of kind of ringing a bell. And at the end, you're not just trying to like, all right, where's the ringing of the bell? You, you listen for the end. You kind of just sit in the silence of the echo after the bell rings. Mm. Um, and, and there's something similar to that when, when dropping into the heart. So does any of that spark anything for you when, when I say kind of dropping into the heart, does that, um, does that ring, ring any bells for you, so to say? Indeed. Absolutely. There's so many different ways I could take this. I'll just begin with a few basic ideas because one you mentioned, it's really hard to describe the heart space. It's really hard to explain. Mm. And that's it, right? Because we're trying to use the mind to explain something that, of course, goes beyond the mind, right? As Ellen Watts would say, just as water cannot rise above its own level, so too the mind cannot rise above the level of thinking, right? And this, again, to me, is the entire spiritual journey. Some say the spiritual journey is a journey of 18 inches traveling from here, pointing to my head, in case people can't see, from here, down to here, from the head to the heart. But I, but I also come back to a poem by Wendell Berry, and he says, actually, the spiritual journey is one inch, it's even shorter than 18, where we finally arrive at the ground beneath our feet, where we finally arrive in the here and now. But of course, human beings are, we're little chatterboxes. We love to talk about things, and we can try our best to describe it. And you were starting to use kind of a more metaphoric language, right? To describe the heart when we say like, oh, we have to go deeper into this area of our being. And this to me is the power of metaphor, the power of poetry to describe a certain way of being that does potentially go beyond the mind, that does tap us into another way of being because we are as we say in Zen, just fingers pointing to the moon, using words to describe a fundamentally undescribable experience. And metaphor can be a really wonderful way to get closer, closer to the moon, because it taps more into the feeling, sensing experience of being in a, in a body and being human. So absolutely, depth is a wonderful way to describe the capacity of the heart, spaciousness, is another way to describe the capacity of the heart 
because we get so focused on limited thoughts of the mind, we don't realize the space that is, of course, around that thought, or we don't, we get so caught up in the contents of our awareness rather than awareness itself, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a famous dialogue of a monk who drew a bird on the chalkboard or the whiteboard, and he said, what is this a picture of? And people were like, oh, it's a bird. He said, no, it's the sky with a bird passing through it. <laughs> and that to me is the level of the heart. It is, is a more expansive, spacious level of awareness that is able to say, hold one's thoughts or even emotions, but from a place of acceptance. Right. So when we get into our true nature, true nature is not the mind. Right. Have you ever like introduced yourself maybe to someone who, you know, English isn't their first language and you say, my name is Jacob, or I would say my name is Zach. No one puts their hand on their head. <laughs> this is me. This I'm is me back right here. here. <laughs> Aren't I back there? I'm not a little person in my head. <laughs> right. You say, this is me. I'm here. I am coming from my center. So to me, that ground of being, the sense of being this, the sense of being here, again, comes down to our bodies, comes down to our hearts, comes down to a reality that cannot be described by the mind, but we can at least try our best to point our way there. And that sense of beingness, spaciousness, depth is close to describe this reality that is fundamentally indescribable. So, so do you have, I mean, in, in your retreats and your teaching yoga meditation, do you, is this often profound to people? Um, cause I, cause for me, um, I didn't grow up with it with a spiritual background at all. It was only, you know, a few years back where I started just going, you know, deep on, on YouTube and in different apps and reading different books and stuff. And I'd have these experiences where, you know, I can kind of feel my awareness, you know, quote unquote, drop, drop into the heart. And it, it was something I hadn't really hadn't really, I don't think I've felt before. Um, what, what, what's your experience when, when you're teaching people? Is this ever kind of a, a light switch for people? Is it the mm. difference between the thinking a, mind? And, <laughs> yeah, it is such an interesting question. Um, it, it's very tempting for me to be like, absolutely. Everyone in my classes have a <laughs> profound and life-changing experience. <laughs> I do remember one time leading a three-week yoga teacher training, and at the end of it, there was this student who was getting her PhD at a you know big fancy university, and she said something along the lines of, "I've learned more in this course that was three weeks, right, than I have in my entire PhD program." Oh. And I was like, "I." It's so true that, you know, in our society, we teach a lot of things. We teach chemistry, we teach history, we teach physics, but rarely do we teach what is most essential. And as you know, in that book, The Little Prince, what is most essential is, of course, invisible to the eye. But that is all just a preface to say that I have found as a teacher or facilitator, I can't teach anybody anything especially if they're not wanting to learn. <laughs> like, you know, you could be like, listen to something and be like, this is a bunch of 
crap. Like, <laughs> yeah. I don't believe any of this. You can yeah. have all sorts of resistance. You probably know the story of the professor and the team master. And he's like, teach me Zen. And the team master is pouring tea into the cup until it overflows. And the professor is like, hey, what are you doing? He's like, this is your mind. Your cup is so full. I can't put any more knowledge into it. You have to empty your cup. And so one of the things that we do discover on the path is that we all have a source of wisdom within all of us. Right. And this is very contrary to what we did for the first 18 years of our life. We were where we were told that in order to learn something, we have to take external information and stuff into our brain. Right. We have to read this book. We have to go to the library. We have to listen to a professor who knows things and then internalize that information. And that is one way of gaining certain understanding of the world. But something we discover on the spiritual path is that our inner space is just as vast as outer space. And that there is a source of wisdom inside of us that we can get in touch with. So I do think all I can do with anything that I ever teach is just point. Mm. Hey, look, what's inside of there? Mm. What happens when you do this? Is there anything beyond the continuous movement of thinking? Is there any part of your experience that goes beyond the general narrative that you have been taught? But it's up to the student to uh to do do it right so sometimes the 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 dharma the teachings of the path is described as a door that is being opened but you as the student as the practitioner have to walk through it so you've also probably heard that basic idea that when the student is ready the teacher will come and i i feel like people misinterpret this lesson because there's it almost seems like magical thinking like once you're ready poof this teacher will just appear right in front of you (laughs) but it doesn't work that way it really works that once you become fully ready you will discover the myriad of teachers both living and non-living both human and non-human that are all around you at all times you will open yourself up and you can learn just as much from a flower as you can from your breath, as you can from Shinryu Suzuki or Amma or somebody else that some other guru teacher that you enjoy. Um, and it's that, that to me is the truth of it is that once you're ready, then you are open to learning f- so much from all the teachers that are around you. Yeah, there's so there's just a wealth of knowledge happening. Or, uh, maybe even knowledge isn't the right word, but a wealth of wisdom, perhaps, happening at all times. If you could just tune tune to it in a way, you know, there, there's so much to be learned. There's so many. Sometimes I like to, you know, in a sense, compare life to a video game. Of all right, what's what's the world? What's this level that I'm on today trying to teach me? You know, because mm. if you're open to actually learning, like ah, oh, dang, this thing happened to me. Oh, I locked my keys in my car. Well, then, you know, it could, you know, it, it switches you from that mindset of this always happens to me or this is so hard for me to handle into like, oh, what can I learn from this? You know, um, did you absolutely. So, so I, I really love um, um, you know, in, in, in the poetic world. I like to think of I think poetry is, is one, of, one of the closer things to koans. You know, it's it's that ushering in of epiphany. It's that mm-hmm. um, that little 
you know, the, 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 yeah, the finger pointing at the moon for sure. Um, but so, so what, what's, what's your journey with poetry yourself in your own writing? Like, how did you stumble upon this? Did you have any poems when you first started writing, you first started reading that you're like, oh, that is, that does do that pointing to something much more profound. Or did you have any koan sort of experiences when you first started with poetry? Mm. It's so lovely that you are bringing up a koan because this is something that I've found also in my teaching because we in the West, we kind of have this basic idea that a good teacher is one who is able to sum up, summarize, and explain really challenging, difficult concepts in a really simple way that we can understand, right? But then you go to say like a Zen monastery and a good teacher is one that makes things so possibly and intentionally difficult (laughs) that in your struggle to wrap your head around it, you attain a new and different level of understanding. Mm. And so, you know, the common trope is that you go to your Zen master and you're like, why am I here? What is the nature of existence? And he'll be like, how much does three pounds of grain weigh? And you're like, what? (laughs) (laughs) And then later you go, how much does three pounds of grain weigh? And he'll be like, the coral in the ocean reflects the light of the moon. So too, everything arises from the emptiness that you are. And like, whatever, like if it's metaphysical, they go literal. If it's literal, they go metaphysical. And that to me is what a koan is meant to do is it's meant to be something the mind cannot grasp. And then as you struggle to to find the solution to the unsolvable problem Mm. that a koan creates is in that struggle, eventually something new gets kind of squeezed out of you. So I am a big fan of koans and I am a big fan of poetry, which is also designed to express a new way or a different way of being and understanding in the world. And you mentioned what poets or poems have inspired, have inspired me early on. And there's been so many, but one I, one poet I particularly love is Jane Hirschfield. And in one of her books, she says that poetry is both an amplification and a clarification of the human experience. like that. Right? And you will find way more about what it means to be human in a poetry book than you will in the dictionary. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like the mind again wants those literal definitions. They want everything to they want everything to be laid out nicely, organized. And um, but the world doesn't doesn't work that way. So um does that answer your question? <laughs> no, yeah, it, it certainly does. I mean, I, I love you bearing with me, Zach, too, because a lot of my questions are just kind of like rambling thoughts and then I trail off into a question mark. So I, I appreciate you playing along. Um, so you, you've already written a couple poetry books. You've already written, um, you have your book, too, The Seven Lessons of Love, Heart Wisdom for Troubling Times. Tell me a little bit about your book and your two works of poetry. And I also understand you're working on another book, too, which or another poetry book, too, which I want to get to, but... Tell me about uh, what are kind of like the summaries of of what you've written thus far. Yeah, well, it's interesting because the one that's most prevalent, I feel, to our current conversation is my most recent book. 
it's going to come out on June 1st. I'm not sure when this podcast will be aired, but it does tap a lot into many of the things that we have been discussing because my most recent book is called Pebbles, which is designed to bring imagery of just like a Zen garden has many pebbles that represent harmony and with the nature and the universe. And there's themes of Zen and interdependence and spiritual awakening and nature. And of course, what it does mean to live from the heart and to have a conceptualization of this world that goes beyond the mind. So earlier, for example, when we were talking about the past and the future and the mind uh, doing a really good job at making our lives insufferable, because it's the mind that will want things to be different, right? I know many people love that phrase that pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. Mm. And I never quite resonated with it until I came across a quote by Sadhguru, the great yogi. And he's just said that pain is physical and suffering is psychological. And which points to it's the mind that wants things to be different than what they are, which to me is the root of suffering. Suffering is simply anytime things are not what we wish them to be. Non-acceptance, yeah. Right. So one of the poems in Pebbles, I can read it to you now, says, we either miss someone or miss the missing. At home, we long for the home that was or will be or never was never content to just be or sit with the flowers that only grow in the shadows of others. Mm. And, you know, a lot of the human experience like is wanting things and then getting it and realizing it's not what we want. Mm -hmm. Right. We're like the dog chasing after the car. And then once we finally get it, we like don't know what to do with ourselves. (laughs) (laughs) Because it's not that you want like the Ferrari or the mansion, or it's that you want the level of peace, security, and safety that you think that yeah. the material object object is going to provide yeah. for you. That's that's big. That's I think that's actually a a huge thing that many people, you know, I, I was about to say wrap your minds around it, but I don't know if that's appropriate. Um, that that is that is very big. You know, we we the feeling that comes with the thing or the accomplishment that we're striving towards or we think we can obtain that's what we're actually looking for and um i think you'll agree that you know a lot of it a lot of the spiritual path is trying to find that here and now without anything else without you know how is how is everything that i have now okay how how can i find peace with what i have now absolutely there's that's one of the basic teachings we have on the spiritual path is that Nothing can bring you lasting happiness, um, but you have it already until you disturb it. That's, uh, I believe it's Swami Satchidananda who said that. And we tend to think that we tend to be in a, in a state of desiring. You know, we want, we have this if only mind, if only such and such were, were to occur, then I could be happy. If only I made more money, if only my boss wasn't such a jerk, if only my partner really understood me. <laughs> and the mind, is plastic. If we are constantly desiring and wanting things to to be different, it's going to that's going to turn into a state that the mind uh, continually comes back to. So sure enough, you get the thing that you want, and you're happy for a little bit, 
but you don't associate that happiness with the fact that just for a brief moment in time, you've stopped desiring anything mm. at all. Right? And you were present. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. So what, what was your process with, uh, with writing pebbles? Um, is it, do you, do you have like a daily, I wake up and I write at this time, or do you kind of like let it influence you as, as it comes about, you know, maybe you catch, catch a thought and that starts your, your poem for, for me, a lot of times I'm like, I know I want to write today. I have some time. And you know, a lot of times I feel like as long as I'm open to it, I can get at least the first couple lines and then it's, you know, a domino domino effect when I write. So what, what was your process like and, and what kind of sparked you at the beginning when you were writing Pebbles? Yeah, I appreciate I love your questions, Jacob. I really appreciate you asking, asking about my path. And, um, and I'll tie it back into your asking about some of my earlier works. And my first poetry collection was called Drinking Roses on Sunday, which was my poetic way of saying that love is my religion because roses mm. to me exemplified romance and love and Sundays when you normally go to church. So it's a lovely name, by the way, lovely name. I really like that. (laughs) It's all just like literally just bathing and drinking up love uh, as part of your religion. And then I've always resonated with poetry, loved poetry, would read tons of poetry in my classes and lessons. So I have like, you know, a document of just hundreds of poems that, that I've gathered and found over the world and in my in the world and after a while I was like you know I kind of want to write my own poems that I read like during poses like shavasana and yoga class so I started writing my own poems and sharing those in class and then those poems became 108 shavasana poems Mm. which I've beta tested myself in meditation and yoga classes just reading it before during or after shavasana and, you know, we tend like with, with any creative field, there's always less some vulnerability of putting your work out there and then having it be judged, judged by others. You know, you spend like five years making a movie and then some reviewers like this is a steaming pile of garbage. <laughs> you pretend Ooh. like it doesn't affect you, but it kind of does. Yeah, but I bring this up because there was one Amazon reviewer who with 108 Shavasana poems was like, these poems are too long. <laughs> And I was like, all right, whoever you are, this Pebbles is for you. Because okay, all right. my intention with Pebbles wasn't, wasn't, you know, inspired by that review. But my intention with Pebbles is just as a pebble is something beautiful and small that you can hold in your hand. The intention was beautiful, elegant, small poems that just brighten your day or just give you another way to think about your day. So I I really came back to that quote. I want to say it's from the little prince again, that perfection is not when nothing can be added, but when nothing can be taken away. So literally the whole time I was writing, I was like, what words do not need to be in this poem? This is a big word. How can I turn it into a smaller word? How can I turn three syllables into two? How can I shave it down to just capture the pure essence of what this poem is trying to get across? So minimalism, elegance, these were really huge intentions when writing this. There there are some poems that are like five words, six words, seven words. There's even a poem that's two words. I <laughs> love it. Cool. But um, that's one of the beautiful things about just poetry in general is that everything that we do when we write can become a tool. And what I mean by that is 
like with a book, you write a paragraph and just to fit the paragraph on the page, you have to take the line and put it on the next line. Right. But with poetry, anything can be a tool, including where's the line break? Like, when are you going to hit that enter space? Right. But you can also play with punctuation. You can also play with where the word is on the page. You can also play with paragraphs or what we call stanzas, right? In between. So, in this way, like, nothing is unnecessary. Right. If you see a comma or a period or a question mark or a line break, it all is meant to get some meaning across. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the space in between is also, you know, just as important as the, as the, the words. Right. Uh, yeah. Um, wow. Wow. That's really cool. Um, so as, as far as your, your journey with yoga, when you first started yoga versus where you are now as a teacher and you've had many years under your belt, um, what's, what's the difference in your, in your understanding? You know, I, and I ask that because I like to, you know, if there's anybody listening who perhaps they don't really, they haven't really explored the world of yoga and maybe they, they just, it's like, oh, well, it's just another workout. I mean, they're going to go to the gym and hit the weights or I'm going to do yoga. Um, mm-hmm. I like to kind of like expand, um, Mm, on the, I guess, yeah, like what, what is yoga to you and how has it changed from when you first started till now, if it mm. has? Yeah, I mean, it's a really excellent question because absolutely when I started out, I kind of treated yoga the way most people treat yoga nowadays is a hour-long workout that you do, you know, two, three, four times a week. And I really got into yoga because of its physical benefits because I had injured my back and this was my path of healing. And at the beginning, I do kind of think that the way, you know, many of us practice yoga is it's almost like dipping our toe into this vast and incredible ocean of understanding. And I've been really getting into just South Indian, South Asian religions, spiritualities, and philosophies. And one of the things I've discovered, you know, you don't think about this, but you take a psychology class and they almost pretend like psychology was invented 100 years ago mm-hmm. by Jung or Freud, right? And then you take a history class and like the United States is like 200, right, 50 years old. And you don't realize what it's like, or I haven't, didn't realize what it's like to be in a country with 5,000 years of history behind it. Mm. And that our understanding of the mind, of ego, of consciousness of, did not begin 100 years ago, but for 3,000 years, there have been communities and spiritual communities that have tapped into the nature of the mind consciousness and come to incredible psychological understandings of how the mind works and how it creates suffering and how to be free of it. So this is this is funny because I want to say like there's this incredible infinite amount of knowledge that yoga does tap you into. You could take any small slice of yoga and spend the rest of your life studying it. Right. You could become a Sanskrit scholar if you want to get into that. You could become a scholar of Southeast uh, Asian philosophies. You could also become a physical therapist or something like that. Right. So, but I say all of that because 
that still does come from a mind and one of gathering knowledge, which is distinctly different from simply becoming wise. And I would say I've done tons of workshops, trainings. I got a master's degree in East-West psychology, and I'm constantly learning. And by far the greatest teacher I have found is literally the breath. (laughs) (laughs) It's like your own breath will teach you everything that you need to know about yourself, about life, about the nature of reality, and so much more. And if I would to sum up like the way I'm thinking about yoga now, which I think is really important is there's this word in Sanskrit called darshan or darshana. And we in the West would translate that to mean philosophical school, which is to say yoga is one of the 10 or 11 philosophical, philosophical schools of ancient India, along with say Buddhism and Mamansa and Shankya and different things like that. But when you get to this word, it literally means way of seeing or worldview. And this is something I've just been really trying to tap into is when we do look out into the world, what do we see? What do we interpret? And you can have a totally different worldview depending on what you've been taught, what you've been led to believe by the system and culture that you've brought up in. So just one example I often use is like when you look out and you see a tree, what do you see? Right? Well, first of all, tree is a label that comes from the mind, right? But you might see an organism undergoing photosynthesis from the sun. You might see a species, right? That's one darshan. That's one darshana. Another way to see it is do you see a manifestation of the tree spirit, right? Do you see Mother Earth offering her gifts to the world? Right? Do you see a home, an ecosystem for countless creatures? Right? Or are you a Buddhist? Do you see emptiness? There is fundamentally no treeness to this thing. Right? So that's really the thing that's been resonating with me most is thinking about like, what do you see when you look out into the world? Is it a scientific view or is it something else? Mm-hmm. So how do you, you know, a lot of times I, I find joy in, you know, explaining or kind of like conversing science and spirituality, you know, because it's, it's often one or the other. Like if you believe in science, then you don't believe in any of that woo-woo stuff, you know, it's, <laughs> it seems like it's like that all the time. And, and it's, it's not exactly like that. Um, so w- in, in your studies with your masters, I'm sure you, you probably came across things that were you know, I'm, I'm sure profound, profound to you um, in, in your understanding East and West psychology. What are some of the bigger differences that someone might be able to like, oh, wow, I never thought about that before when it, when it comes to studying East versus West mm-hmm. understanding of psychology? Yeah, it's an excellent question. And you frame it really well when you talk about this artificial bifurcation that we have created between science and spirituality which kind of happened like in the Western world for, I want to say like 14th, 15th, 16th century when science was coming to a different understanding than the popular, you know, Christian belief at the time, right? We were starting to discover that we're not the center of the universe. We're not even the center of our own solar system. Oh no, it hurts to know it. (laughs) (laughs) And then there was this, this split, right? And, um, This is our 
we have in the West, because again, we've all been raised to believe a certain certain things about the world. And we do have a very particular darshan, very particular worldview, very particular categorization system that we have in our minds around what science is, around what religion and spirituality is. And I'll also even throw the role of the state in um, to say this is just one way of being. It's not necessarily good or bad, but there are pros and cons to each, right? Like we do have a separation between church and state and many people think it's this really incredible thing. And there obviously are huge benefits and less tyranny from, you know, radical, radical believers. Um, but there are totally other ways to organize one's entire, entire um society around the sacred, around the spiritual, right? So you go to something like Bali, which, the island of Bali in Indonesia, which practices a very unique blend of what they call Agama Hindu Dharma, a very interesting blend of, of Buddhism. So you'll see, you know, Buddha heads everywhere and Hinduism, and you'll see Ganeshas everywhere, and then their own kind of indigenous belief systems. And like by law, like every every little town has to have a temple in the middle of it, right? And when I, when I'm getting to that is um, part of our Western darshan is we do almost see religious life as what I call like an extracurricular activity. Mm, mm. I know what you <laughs> in mean. that yeah. we, like for most people, like every Sunday you go to some church for like two hours of your day. And that's like it, like that is the extent to which you are integrating these belief systems. And then you go to work, which is very, you know, secular to the point of being completely sanitized of any other way of being. And then you might have a scientific endeavor, which again is separate, is very separate from one's own religious or uh, spiritual understanding of the world. And as a result, like we might put we don't put yoga in the same uh, category as science, right? But absolutely in India and the East, they would say this is absolutely a mind body empirical science that has been developed over thousands, not just like a hundred years of psychology, right. but over thousands of years that shapes uh, everything that we do in the world that shapes uh, what we do when we wake up, that shapes our darshan, how we view the world, shapes how we organize our society, organize our family structures. And so like just one example is, you know, the eightfold path of Buddhism, we have right action and we have right livelihood, right? So it's not just like you can work for the oil company over here and destroy, you know, valuable ecosystems and cause global mm -hmm. warming and then come over here and then meditate and call yourself a good Buddhist. Yeah. As long as you go to church <laughs> and negate, you're fine. Yeah. Right. There's right action. You have to, you infuse it into, into everything it is that you do. So, um, you know, to me, yoga is all about that linking together. Yoga, you know, some say the etymology of yoga is simply one of linking or being together, or experiencing unity. And recognizing that that artificial separation of science and spirituality or the sacred and the secular is, again, the mind creating a world of, of separation. And part of our path is to bring it 
bring it all back together. Yeah. Okay. I like that. Yeah. Okay. So what is, um, I mean, I, I, I definitely want to answer the, the, what is love question. That's always wonderful. <laughs> I'm sure you have a great answer for that. Um, you know, so, so let, let's go there. Let's go with what is love. Um, and then also how can we like extrapolate it out from, it's, it's such a, it's such a household term, but it's, um, uh, it's something like so deep, like it's really is such an understanding, like everything really is all love and so many, like our, our entire reality is, is love in a sense. So let, let's, uh, let's see what you, what you, where you go with it, Zach, what is love? <laughs> all right. There's so many ways I could go with it, but I tend to just start with one of the most simplest and straightforward ideas that all love is, is a genuine concern for another person's well-being. And this is largely informed by some Buddhist philosophy. And you might know what are known as the four Brahma Viharas or the four divine abodes or the four noble qualities, where if you embody these qualities, you become a noble and good person. And all of these qualities or three of the four qualities are what happens when our love touches another person, what happens when our genuine concern for another person's well-being touches that person and how they are doing in their life. So one of the Brahma Viharas is simply compassion, which is what happens when our love meets somebody who is suffering, somebody who is having a challenging experience in their life. Compassion is that desire for that person to be alleviated of their suffering right? When our love touches somebody who isn't suffering, but they're doing pretty okay, it turns into loving kindness, which is one of my most favorite concepts. You've probably heard the Pali word metta or the Sanskrit maitri. And I often like to just use the Sanskrit words because there's never a perfect translation. So we don't even have a word for metta. So we had to combine two words <laughs> to combine loving and kindness. Mm. And then another phrase that another concept that uh, is really helpful is the third Rama Vihara, which is mudita, which is sympathetic joy, which is joy in somebody else's joy, which mm. is to say that if you love somebody and you want them to do good, or do well, not to suffer, and they're doing pretty good, then you have medita, you have sympathetic joy. You are happy that they are happy, mm. right? Which runs so contrary to like the envy and the jealousy that we tend to experience when another person, like good things happen to another person that, you know, isn't happening to you. Like your coworker comes in and they're like, oh, I just got that promotion. I got a big raise. Weren't you also wanting that, right? Not a whole <laughs> lot of mudita. <laughs> Not a whole lot of mudita there. But I love all of these things. Um, I love compassion, loving kindness, and sympathetic joy or joy in somebody else's joy. And that concept of mudita or sympathetic joy is also really crucial to love because there's a lovely researcher, I think she was at uh, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill named Bar Barbara Fredrickson. And she has this book called Love 2.0 and does research, again, scientific empirical research around what love is. And then she uses this basic idea of positivity resonance and looks at how literally physiologically you resonate with somebody that you love with that you love 
And when you're, guess what? It's amazing. If you're happy, if you want somebody to be happy and they want you to be happy, you get happy. Guess what? They get happy that you're happy. And then you're happy that they're happy that you're happy. And then you just resonate in this happiness resonance that just, that just takes you up. It takes you up to the sky. And that's one of the reasons, just one, of why love is so powerful and transformational because it has the capacity to, to take us to places we never would have dreamed of. Right. So, and this, again, when you look at relationship science, this tends to be more important um, and more crucial towards successful and happy relationships. And that by and large, yes, in a relationship, you want to be there for your partner. If they're having a hard time, you want to, you want to have some compassion for them. But what they have found when they look at successful and happy couples is while being there during the hard times is important, what's just as, if not more important, is rejoicing in each other's happiness. When your partner comes home and says, this great thing happened today, those successful, happy couples are ones that are like, oh my gosh, that's Tell so amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's great. Okay. So, so what do you, in, in you, you know, you, you're a love coach. So you, you, you teach love in a sense. So what, what does it look like at the beginning? You know, when you, you have people come in and you're, I mean, I think it'd be, kind of strange to sit down and like, all right, teach me about love. Like, I don't know, you know, everybody thinks they probably have their own version of love. We think we understand love. Like, is there, is there unlearning that, that you feel you, you have to teach often in, uh, you know, when you're, when you're in your, you know, love coaching scenario situation. Mm. So I got to qualify a few things because first you're saying, do I teach? And again, you can't teach anything. <laughs> love it. Okay. Yes. And you've, also probably noticed how free and glib advice can be in this world. So also, you know, as coaches, we don't um, offer advice, for example, which can be cheap and doesn't, the same advice doesn't work for everyone. Gotcha. Um, let me just back up a little bit because I think most people are familiar with life coaching where you kind of have somebody and you have your kind of, you know, you go through your like eight part part chart together and you work on your career and you work on your family and you work on your health and your wellness. And <clears throat> what I have found, and I don't, I don't have too much time to explain it, is it all ends up coming back to love and connection and belonging. And if we are to get to the root the true root of our happiness and the cause of our suffering, it does come back to love and that anything that brings us on the path of happiness is that brings us more on the path of love and our suffering in life is that of a, of a result of lack of love. So indeed, I love coaching people into helping them resource themselves, right? recognizing that everything that you need is already within you. And all we have to do is bring it out. All we have to do is educe it. All we have to do is recognize that you're already strong, already capable, already know what it is that you need to do in this current challenge that you are experiencing. So <clears throat> people do experience challenging things around love in a number of ways. We can easily divide it up between self, other, and, well, let me divide it up into self-love, 
love between individuals and love between groups and communities, right? So family, for example, would be in groups. And people struggle in all those categories at different times in their lives. So there are people that struggle with self-love, you know, loving and accepting themselves. There are people that are struggling in their friendships. They want deeper, more authentic, more connecting friendships. There are people that struggle with groups like their family, believe it or not. I know it can be hard to believe, but some people don't have the most loving supportive relationships with their family. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Um, But also what's really crucial too is just, is this community. Um, Mm -hmm. Is we have really forgotten that uh, we've really evolved to grow up in a network of supportive people that know us and understand us. And all those things are of course kind of connected to each other. So everything from romantic relationships to dating to long-term to sex and sexuality. There are lots of people out there who are struggling with having an experience of love in their lives with themselves, with a romantic partner, with their community. And I help them along on that path. That's beautiful. What a, what a great field to be working in. That's so great that you do any of that. Every, everything you do is awesome as far as I'm concerned, <laughs> Zach. Um, so, so you have had a podcast for a while now. You're almost, I, I noticed you're, uh, you're up right around 100 episodes. So you have, I don't know if it's a new guest every single episode, but 100 episodes, you've got to have learned something through, through that series by now. Is there anything like uh-huh. a blanket statement? Like wh- what have you learned from podcasting? So you've, you're a good interviewer, Jacob. You've done your research. This is awesome. I should, I would, if I was there, I would give you a hug or pat you oh, on the back or something. Hug received virtually, virtual, my friend. Virtual Zoom hug. <laughs> Thanks, Zach. Um, it's true. You know, I, <clears throat> I used to run this workshop series called Learn to Love, where I'd bring in a new speaker to speak in a new topic. And it was just a lovely community and a lovely community event that we would have. And COVID upended all of our lives and everything shifted online. So I was like, okay, I can shift this online. So I did start a podcast around COVID happened and I called it the learn to love podcast. And I was like, we'll see how long this goes, (laughs) you know, how long we're isolated from each other. And as you, as we have all discovered, things have gone a lot longer than any of us ever would have predicted. Two weeks lasted a little bit long. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. But with every crisis, there is opportunity and I have kept it going. So every week I interview a new guest and it's either a therapist or a coach or an educator or a researcher. And I, we have questions on love, sex, intimacy, and relationships. And I have really been enjoying the entire experience. You know, I've been learning about and researching the nature of love for at least 10 years now. So I like to think that I know a thing or two about a thing or two. But me, myself, I've learned so much from all of my guests. It's been really incredible. And it's also been nice that we get to connect with anybody, wherever they may be in the world. We're no longer geographically limited. And we also get to reach an audience that is anywhere in the world. So... Absolutely. I've learned a lot about communication, the importance of compassion. We've talked about sex, love, intimacy, monogamy, non-monogamy, long-term relationships, all that. And, you know, there's, again, there's all sorts of lessons that I've learned, but 
I do want to just go back to this basic idea because I, I do feel I still have to convince people that love is the reason that we are here on this planet because there's yes. always that resistance. Yes, yeah, tell me. <laughs> because I'm telling you, it's not just some, it's not just some far out ideal, but you know, everyone that I've been talking to from psychologists at Stanford University to a therapist in the deep south to um, you know, recovering evangelical Christians and coaches and therapists, they all have expressed the same message that we all need love from the cradle to the grave, so to speak. We all need to be seen, understood, recognized for who we are. And there is nothing more special or essential as love. And just to give you like one example, when I talked about love affecting our health, right? And what's interesting is the presence of love in one's life lowers the risk factor one has for all, all of them, all causes of death, mm -hmm. right? Every last one from heart disease to cancer to suicide, right? You think that would be like on the front page of every news station, you know, <laughs> like you think, but. <laughs> well, you probably saw, again, saw that like there was a, this longitudinal study at Harvard University. I'm pretty sure it was done by George Vaillant, who also wrote this amazing book, Spiritual Evolution. And after 70 years, they also, of, you know, Harvard scientific long-term longitudinal research, they also came to the same conclusion, right? And, and you're like, how does that work, right? What do you mean all causes, yeah. right? And it's like, what I often point out, it's very interesting what evolution has wired us to do and not to do. So for example, I can easily take my arm up, I can move my arm down. What I cannot do is take my sadness up and take my sadness down. We were wired to regulate our emotions, our stress with other people around us. What does help you bring your sadness down, bring your anger down? Talking with somebody, sharing it with somebody, being vulnerable with somebody. So obviously love does help us regulate our own nervous system, which has a bounty of health and positive health effects. But Life is hard and none of us can do it alone. So when we look at like, well, why is love a risk factor for suicide? Well, it's like one way to say measure somebody's um, subjective experience of, of love and connection, you know, you give them a survey, right? So what are you going to ask them? So one thing you might ask them is, do you have anybody in your life that you can share a secret with or emotionally confide in? Right. You might also ask them, is there anybody in your life that you could borrow $500 from if you like really needed it? Right. And unfortunately with each subsequent generation, we're more lonely and isolated than ever before. So the numbers are getting worse, but you know, even a, a quarter of people now have nobody, nobody in their life that they can talk to. Ugh. Right. So what happens when you can't borrow $500 from somebody? Well, when you're behind on rent, guess what? You get kicked out. Guess what? You're homeless. Guess what? Mm -hmm. You can't get mail. You can't get a job, right? It easily puts you on this downward spiral that will end up with some 
over overall that affects you know suicide alcoholism different things like that so this is this is as real this isn't again some pie in the sky idea this is real life and this basic idea that we absolutely need others um, to be happy and to survive yeah beautiful that's yeah, that's a, it's something, it's, it's so many ways it seems so obvious, you know, but, but we forget, you know, we get, we get too caught up in the, too caught up in the details, you know, and, and we forget the importance of just love. So, um, one, one thing that did pop into my mind, um, something that I, you know, I think it's something that I still, that I still am trying to unwind in many ways in my own psychology is transactional love. Like you do this for me, I'll do this mm. for you. Um, I, like it, it was, it was something that I, I think that I learned at a young age as like a survival technique sort of thing. Um, and, and I think it took me a while to kind of uh, unfold it and, um, you know, you know, trust the people when they're like, dude, if you need anything, call me like, you know, to, to really trust them. Like, well, I, you know, what if, what if I don't answer my phone when you call though? And I miss my, miss the phone call. And, you know, I don't know. It's, um, does anything spark to mind from that when when I say transactional love <laughs> and, and unwinding that belief? Uh, yes, the fundamental inquiry around unconditional love, if it's possible, if it's worth it, can it be done? You know, you might read something like Osho, who you probably know, and he has this dialogue and he says something along the lines of, you know, what most people call love is not love. It's just a transaction. It's just, I will love you if you do these things for me. You know, if you tell me I'm beautiful. Yeah. And, <laughs> and prove you, your love to me. <laughs> and you meet my emotional needs and you do these things for me, then I will love you. If you cease to do these things, my love will be quite conditional. Yeah. You know, if you, I'll just like... Uh, cheat on me if you do some some terrible transgression my love will very quickly turn to hate <laughs> and um it is it is kind of incredible you know there's certain the relationship that people do have with their exes right the things that you sometimes hear people say and i don't want to diminish like the re very real emotional pain and trauma that one can experience in a romantic and loving relationship but just merely to observe that somehow we have gone from you know the most important person in my life. I love you with every fiber and cell in my being to, I mean, now you're just somebody I used to know to yeah. here's my restraining order. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Oh. Yeah. So um, the question, you know, so the question kind of begins, um, what, what are we to do about this? And is, is that love? Is it real love? And what does unconditional love look like? And I personally, again, there's many different ways I could kind of approach it from. But one thing I often find that people forget on the path towards unconditional love is the most important person, you. <laughs> is you can love everyone. Okay. This is the path. Our path is to love everyone without conditions, believe it or not. And who else? You. You are included in that everyone. Mm -hmm. 
Because that to me, it tends to be one of the biggest obstacles because um, you do find, I say like, oh, you should love everyone, open your heart as much as you can. And people will say, oh, so someone in an abusive partnership should just stay there because, you know, they love their partner or they're staying together because they love their kids. It's like, hold on. I think you forgot somebody. <laughs> you also mm -hmm. need to love yourself. You also need to have a genuine concern and love for your own being. So there's absolutely more like tender versions of love. Like I've been had a really rough day. I'm going to have a bubble bath, take care of myself. And they're also more young, more fierce versions of love, such as in order for me to love myself, I need to set up this boundary. I need to um, protect myself in a certain way, right? So no, absolutely not. Don't stay in an abusive relationship because uh, of the love you have for your partner or your kids. Because once you have a really healthy and supportive love for oneself, which again has to be unconditional, are you going to stop loving yourself because you made a mistake? No. You have to recognize we all make mistakes. We're all human. We're all, as Ram Das would say, walking each other home. Mm -hmm. We're all, uh, our actions are all unfolding according to our own karma and conditioning. And you can, so when you do have this, that healthy self-love, an important part of that is appropriate boundaries, is being like, I respect myself and honor myself. And I expect the people in my life to respect me, honor me, take care of me. If you cross this boundary, part of my self-love practice will be to separate. Mm -hmm. And believe it or not, I know this might be tough for you know some folks to hear, but you can absolutely love somebody and I'll say push. It's kind of an active word, but I'll say and push them out of your life mm -hmm. or make the appropriate separation that you need between you and them so that they are not causing you unnecessary suffering and you can say listen i love you you're an incredible human being there's a fundamental goodness in all people including in you and no longer can you be in my life mm. for these reasons right yeah. so opening one's heart to other people doesn't mean you're going to be some rug that gets walked over it doesn't mean that you have to tolerate negative behavior toxic relationships, abusive relationships. And that does start with, in my mind, a love for oneself. And part of that love recognizes that you are imperfect and still worthy of love. You make mistakes and still worthy of love. And we can extend that also to other people, but we can also decide what people we want in our life and what people we do not want in our life. Right. right. So even Ram Dass, like Ram Dass, the late Ram Dass, you probably know Richard Alpert who turned into right. Ram Dass. Like I, he used I mean, to say like on his altar, he would have a picture of, you know, Jesus and Buddha and then Dick Cheney, uh -huh. Dick Cheney. <laughs> 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 and you look at like, how can, you know, what is stopping me from loving this person? Right. And then that's, that is part of the path is looking at our own resistance to mm -hmm. loving another human being. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that. I find um, a, a lot of times in my meta or, you know, love, loving kindness meditations, the thing mm. that really clicked for me, the thing that really worked for me, um, I, I use a Sam Harris's waking up app is, is the one I like to use a lot, but mm -hmm. um, 
the act of you know visualizing someone that you know you know your your Dick Cheney or whoever it is visualizing that person you know as a child you know they were a child mm, once mm-hmm. and uh, you know they had a whole life but before they were who they were and you know they had parents and it kind of helps it's this little doorway in you know and and as a, as a little tip and trick uh, for anybody if if it's difficult often with meta. Um, it's difficult to immediately like think of yourself and bring self-love to yourself. So um, sometimes you could use that as a little doorway. You know, if you're imagining someone else as a child, well, can you think of times when you were a child? Like, wouldn't you wish yourself love too? And if you could visualize, you know, yourself as a seven-year-old or something and, okay, I can feel love for them. It starts to open a little bit of that heart, heart doorway in a sense, you know, into yourself. Absolutely. I mean, I sometimes repeat this quote and I think people have heard it so much. It's almost turned into a bit of a cliche, but I'll just say it that as Rumi would put it, your task is not to seek for love, but merely to remove all the obstacles against it. And part of our path of moving from conditions to unconditional love is recognizing the own obstacles, our own obstacles that we have put in the way of our love. And a huge part of that is looking at the people in our lives that we are not loving and looking deeply at those obstacles. And I absolutely resonate very much with that meta meditation. We, where you progressively go to more challenging people, right? Mm. Cause that's that challenge is those that challenge you the most that will, that are pointing out um, exactly where it is you need to grow the most. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Beautiful. Okay, man. Well, we're getting up here in time. Um, this has been amazing. Like a whole episode about love. I couldn't ask for anything better. It's so great. Um, wow. so time has flown my friend. Yeah, it definitely has. We had a great conversation, Zach. Um, I, I do want to make sure everybody knows, you know, wh- where to find you. Um, you, you have an Instagram, you're active on Instagram, you post your new podcasts on there, the learn to love podcast. Um, they can, they can find, can they find all of your past writings on Amazon or is yeah, all my books are available on Amazon for sure. Okay, and then when when is when does Pebbles come out? June first. June first. You can pre-order it now. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Um. Again, I'm not. I'm. I'm strange when it comes to posting episodes, so I'm not sure exactly when this is gonna when this is gonna post. Well, hopefully, it might be available hopefully right soon. now. Yeah, it, it could be. <laughs> um, I, I would love to if you're willing, Zach. I would love to. Um, again, if I didn't mention anything that you want to make sure everybody knows mention that, but I would love to go out on another poem if, if you have another one you'd like to share. Sure. Um, so there's three sections of pebbles. First section is pebbles. Second one is leaves, which has slightly longer ones, longer poems, kind of designed to look like leaves. And the third one is petals, designed like a beautiful blossoming flower. And I bring this up because I don't want to make it seem like love is just sunshine and rainbows (laughs) or even that I'm just living in a state of blissful sunshine, rainbowy love. Um, And I have found that often on the path that a broken heart is a gateway to an open heart. Mm. And definitely it seems like right now is a time frame that breaks our heart more and more uh, maybe you know 10 years ago we would say the same thing but there's so much going on in the world from i don't want to politically ostracize anybody but i'll just say from abortion rights to ukraine to a dying world 
that is under threat right now. And that was another huge uh, motivation for Pebbles is to cultivate a love for the natural world, for mm -hmm. Mother Earth, Madre Tierra, Pachamama, Mother Gaia, um, because in our expanding our love to more and more people, um, we, of course, cannot forget the non-human, non-living, uh, not non-living, but uh, non-human creatures. And that is our task to me, is to keep our heart open uh, throughout it all, to have the courage to face whatever it is that needs to be faced right now, the most pressing issues. Um, and who knows, maybe by the time this airs, another... <laughs> pressing issue will be the main main hopefully event not. hopefully not <laughs> hopefully we can keep the camera angles not at the new the new thing yeah, yeah. but okay. part of our path to me has always been to widen the circles of our compassion to more peoples and of course to the natural world so this is one of the poems that's in petals so each stanza is just one petal on a big flower and it goes like this they say the center of God's sphere is everywhere and the circumference nowhere. I have found the same to be true of an open heart. It feels all things. Those choosing wallpaper and those wondering if they will make it to the end of the day. The hawk missing its babies and each blade of grass being cut. No stacking of selfish justifications will ever take you near enough to the sky to taste its light where we live, drunk on cherry trees, dreaming of their bloom. That's lovely, man. That's lovely. Well, man, thank you for sharing. Thank you for sharing your poems. Um, I'm looking forward to checking out Pebbles when it comes out. Um, this is, I, th thanks again for your time. Thanks again for, for sharing. And, uh, of course, you know, answering my, my rambling questions. I appreciate it. Thanks for hanging with me. Um, Thank you so much, Jacob. I love your open-ended questions and your thoughtfulness just really carries through in this work that you're doing. So it's been really wonderful to connect with you. Yeah, absolutely. Likewise, Zach. Well, th thanks so much. Um, listeners love yourself, take care of yourself, you know, breathe through your nose, breathe slowly. Check out a check out a yoga yoga class and see what you can learn from it besides just the physical things. So, yeah. All right, man. Well, uh, we'll be in touch, Zach. I will shoot you an email when this does post. And otherwise, have a good rest of your day, buddy. Thank you, Jacob. Namaste. Namaste. Thank you.